The death penalty trial for the Parkland shooter will not start over after all. Rising COVID cases in South Florida and more trouble for Broward's 911 system. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. It has not been a smooth start to choosing the people who will decide whether or not Nicholas Cruz lives or dies. We'll have the latest update on the effort to seat a jury in his death penalty trial. COVID cases are on the increase from recent lows. The virus is showing up more in Miami-Dade's sewage. It's an early warning sign. Could we see another surge? And new worries about the 911 system in Broward County. A Sun Sentinel investigation finds delays in answering emergency calls and dozens of unfilled jobs. Broward County Sheriff Gregory Tony will join us this hour. Our program is made possible by Willie the Bee Man, Bee Removal Specialist. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening and supporting public broadcasting. The Parkland school shooter death penalty trial was back in court this week in Broward County, and the week started with the judge deciding to start jury selection all over again. Well, then we're going to start over. I'm granting the motion. We're going to start over. But on Wednesday, Judge Elizabeth Scherer reversed that decision and jury selection resumed. She called that earlier ruling premature. It's the latest glitch in the effort to select people who will decide whether Nicholas Cruz lives in prison for the rest of his life or dies. He has admitted already to killing 17 people and hurting 17 others four years ago at the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland. We'll update you here on the latest with the uh, jury selection efforts, what's next for the case, and the bigger picture that uh, this is happening in here in South Florida. If you want to join our conversation, please do. We're on Twitter, at WLRN, also 800-743-9576. What questions do you have about this process? 800-743-9576. Gerard Albert III is with us, WLRN's Broward County reporter, oftentimes in court during the jury selection. Gerard, welcome back to uh, the South Florida Roundup. Why did the judge first decide to restart jury selection from the beginning early this week? Hey, Tom. Uh, that happened on Monday. So to understand what happened this week, we have to go back about two more weeks when 11 jurors uh, were dismissed, uh, the court found improperly, because they said that they could not follow the law. And that means that they would not impose a death penalty. Uh, the defense lawyers for Nicholas Cruz argued, well, we should have had a chance to what they call coach those jurors, get them to see if they could um, see things a different way, say maybe they could follow the law. Those are obviously jurors that the defense would want to have. On Monday, the state moved to strike those jurors and restart jury selection. This is all because those 11 jurors were supposed to be called back this week, which they weren't. Um, nobody had reached out to them. Uh, Sun Sentinel had reported that it seemed to be a miscommunication. No one reached out to these jurors to, to summon them back. So on Monday, sure moves to restart jury selection. On Wednesday, the defense says that is preferential treatment to the prosecutors, and you should take the death penalty off the table. That was Wednesday morning. Right. Then Wednesday afternoon, she comes in and says, you know what? I acted prematurely. We are not going to restart jury selection. And so what was the reaction from the lawyers in the case, from the, the, the state, the prosecution, and the public defenders? Uh, you know, it, it, it's hard to tell without speaking to them. Uh, just going off 
facial reactions and, and their demeanor in court, it, it's a frustrating process. I mean, death penalty cases are never simple, um, but this one is especially messy, um, I think, because of the the notorious nature of the case and the press coverage it's getting, the, the, the frankly, the inexperience of Cher and... Uh, you know, I think the lawyers now are seeing that and dealing with it. Yeah. Uh, Gerard, stick with us. Gerard Albert III, W. Lawrence Broward County reporter, who has uh, been oftentimes in court during jury selection uh, for the Parkland shooter death penalty trial. Edith Georgie is with us now, former Miami-Dade County public defender. Uh, Edith, welcome to W. and Thanks for taking your time and sharing your expertise with us. Uh, what do you make of the judge reversing the decision this week and continuing with jury selection? Thank you for having me. And I would say that there is no good way out right now. It's like the briar patch. You stick one foot in, you get tangled. You stick another foot in, you get more tangled. I think um, there is a very complicated process which has been set in motion, which very um, it's going to continue throughout this whole process. And she's damned if she doesn't, she's damned if she doesn't, because of the initial rejection of those 11 jurors. Um, I had, there's a case that um, happened in 1986, which you all are too young to know about, but it was <laughs> a police officer named Koning mm -hmm. was charged with manslaughter uh, for killing a black man. And the judge, David Gersten, uh, I think he's still around, but not a judge, struck the whole panel because there was not a black person represented on the panel. The, the appellate courts went nuts over it, had hearings and re-hearings and opinions and more opinions. And um, the court generally said it was wrong for the judge to do this, but it wasn't raised as fundamental constitutional error based on double jeopardy. So it's an interesting case to look at, even though it's many years old. Many years old. Certainly some significant differences there, a manslaughter case versus a, a death penalty uh, pen, uh, a penalty trial here, uh, not to adjudicate uh, guilt or innocence, but rather the penalty. But Edith, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, uh, picking a jury is a complex process. There's no doubt. It doesn't matter if it's a death penalty case or if it's a, uh, you know, a relatively more minor uh, criminal or even a civil case. But it is a process that happens, you know, over and over and over again. Right. So I, the curiosity here is, is uh, in that briar patch, how did we get into this briar patch? And, and can, can, can Broward County, uh, can the court get out of that briar patch and still hold a death penalty sentencing hearing trial. Well, you're right about your first points. Um, of course, it's extremely complicated. This is a case that is known everywhere in Florida. So while the defense has moved, I believe, and it's been denied for a change of venue, you could take this case to Tallahassee or to Key West, but all of Florida and a lot of the country knows about this case. So yeah. the prospect of getting a fair jury is nil. It's next to nil in this matter. I would suggest you look at the Sarnoff case, which is better known, known as the Boston Marathon bombing case, mm -hmm. which happened in 2013, went to trial in 2015, kind of along our same time frame, uh, was reversed uh, by the appellate court in 2020 because of jury selection issues, 
because of the difficulty of finding a fair jury, which is exactly the same problem in this case, which we haven't even really gotten into. Right. Um, and the Supreme Court just recently overturned the appellate courts granting a new trial. This is going to go right. on right. and on forever. Yeah. Uh, Gerard, I'm, I'm curious, I mean, you, you, you know, just measuring the environment, the atmosphere in, in the courtroom over the past a few weeks of jury selection, has it changed noticeably to you? Has de- have demeanors changed uh, b- between the attorneys and the judge? Um, give us a sense of, uh, you know, what it's like today in that uh, in that courtroom versus what it was like in those first few days of jury selection. I think the biggest change has come from the judge. Um, I, I think she knew she was in for for a, a messy trial, but but nothing like this. Uh, she's I, I, last time we spoke, I told you that she was kind of uh, going through jury selection a lot quicker and a lot more fluidly. It is still there, but I, I she's a lot more stern now. She's a lot more fed up and frustrated with the lawyers doing what lawyers do, the sportsmanship of, 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 of litigating. Yeah. Um, there, there aren't any, there aren't many parents in the, in the audience yet, um, or members of the public at all. Um, but it, it's really going to be interesting to see when they're all there, um, how their demeanor is. Edith, you are no stranger to jury selection and, and, uh, being in the courtroom with the judge. How does a judge's management, of a case impact jury selection first? Well, it's huge. Um, The judge really needs to set the ground rules, really needs to stay in control, and really needs to follow her own ground rules, which apparently she didn't in this case. Um, And it's it's traumatic on everyone in the courtroom with a case like this. You, You think even the corrections officers that had to protect Mr. Cruz, when those outlandish comments were made, it's a very difficult, it is the worst case for a a judge who's never tried a capital case to jump into. So I want to ask about that, Edith, because I understand that there are experience requirements for public defenders to work on a death penalty case. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely. You have to go to uh, school every two years, so many credit hours and keep up to date on the law and so forth. Yes. And judges the same. They have to go to a special death judges school, which I'm sure she's been to because she's been on the bench 10 years. It has been suspended because of COVID for the last year or so. And it's coming up again, I think in May. So how does the judge's management of a case even early on, as we're seeing in this particular instance, affect legal strategy for public defenders as well as for prosecutors? Well, it's like going on a tennis court without any rules and without any lines because everybody, uh, no one knows what the rules are going to be and it could change as she has flip-flopped from day to day. It's so stressful on everyone. I'm including the prosecutors. I'm including the victims people Mm -hmm. who who don't know what's going to happen next. The stress created by um, this back and forth and uncertainty is just overwhelming. And what about just the general confidence, uh, uh, community's confidence? This is obviously, as we've mentioned multiple times, high-profile trial, right? We're talking about it almost on a weekly basis here on the South Florida Roundup. Gerard is in in in, in court uh, almost three times a week when they're holding this jury selection. Uh, it is a 
case that is oftentimes live on court TV for people to watch directly. So, Edith, what about the judge's demeanor and decisions? Uh, How does that affect community confidence in the process and ultimately the outcome? Well, here we have a person, uh, Nicholas Cruz, who's pled guilty to 17 murders. He could be sentenced immediately to 17 life sentences, each one mandatory life. He never gets out, not until he dies in prison. And you have the community watching this devastating, uh, traumatic, stressful situation. I think it's going to undermine people's faith and the system because why is the prosecution going forward? There is plenty of mitigation on his behalf. There is, it's going to be next to impossible to find a jury that will really be fair. And then if he gets death, the appeals will go on for years and years, decades. Which so is not unusual I, in a death penalty case. We no, should it's out, not right? unusual. Right. But this is undermining the public's faith in the system. Here you have a young man who's taken responsibility and said, I'm guilty, sentence me to life, I'll never get out again. And why are we putting everyone? I think this is traumatizing for the community, not just for the legal community, but the whole community. Gerard, uh, what is next on the docket for this process? Well, before I before you answer that, though, what, what state is the jury selection in? How many jurors are, are in the pool now? <laughs> uh, it's a good question. <laughs> uh, so, I enjoy the laughter. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this week, uh, the tally was about 150, um, and the past two weeks was about 250, and those jurors, as it stands right now, are counted uh, to move on to that second round of questioning. When that will come, uh, the date is moved around a bit. When the as, when opening arguments will be heard has been pushed back a bit to the middle of June. Um, you know, I, 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 I'm weary to say a, a definitive date with mm-hmm. the way that things have been going, but uh, the second round of jury selection which is where the lawyers from both sides will question the potential jurors more intensely about the death penalty, about their knowledge of the case, uh, that should be coming up uh, towards the end of the month. I'm sorry, um, in the next two weeks. In the next two weeks. Uh, So sometime here in early May, as we're staring at May over the the coming weekend. Gerard Albert III, Broward County reporter for WLRN. Gerard, always a pleasure. Thank you for sharing your reporting with us. Thank you. Edith Georgie, former Miami-Dade County public defender. Edith, uh, great to have you on the program, and thanks so much for sharing your your deep experience with us. Thank you. Anytime. I appreciate that. We will uh, probably have plenty of opportunity in the future to continue to uh, discuss uh, the process that is happening in the Parkland shooting death penalty trial. Still to come on this edition of the South Florida Roundup, COVID. Cases are on the rise again here in South Florida, and one vaccine maker hopes to get its shots into the arms of young kids very soon. So what COVID questions do you have? 800-743-WLRN. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup here on WLRN. Thanks for listening this week. I'm Tom Hudson. COVID-19 infections are climbing again after dropping for months from the Omicron surge. At the beginning of the year, new cases of the virus are increasing in our region. The latest data, which is now more than a week old, shows new infections in Miami-Dade County rising to their highest level since February. 
The Centers for Disease Control now rates Miami-Dade at a medium community level of the virus. And while case counts are slowly rising in Broward, Palm Beach, and Monroe counties, they remain with a low community level of COVID, according to the CDC data. In the meantime, this week, Moderna wants the Food and Drug Administration to grant its COVID vaccine an emergency okay to be used for young children. This would be the first COVID-19 vaccine for kids six months old to five years old. The FDA this week did okay the first COVID treatment for children under 12. It's for kids who are hospitalized with a serious case of the virus. So what COVID questions do you have as the pandemic does continue? 800-743-WLRN. When to mask? When to go without a mask? When to protect yourself and others? 800-743-9576. Daniel Chang is with us now, healthcare reporter for our news partner, the Miami Herald. Dan, great to have you. Uh, nice to hear from you again, and thanks for sharing your reporting with us. Hi, Tom. Thank you. It's great. It's great to be here. Uh, officials have been monitoring sewage in Miami-Dade County. This is a story you reported well, out. Uh, why monitor sewage? Well, uh, Tom, the, the interesting thing about this, and this has been known for a while, this, this sort of surveillance has been used for other diseases in the past. But, um, you know, it turns out that uh, people who have coronavirus tend to shed um, particles of the virus in their feces. And so uh, when they flush their toilets and uh, if they're not on a septic tank, if they're on the, the county sewer system, uh, it usually ends up at sort of one of three large wastewater treatment plants. And, uh, and that's where the county uh, uh, sort of samples um, uh, over a period of time. It's not like you just dip a bucket in there and, mm -hmm. and pull it out. It's a, a little bits at a time. Um, and and uh, so they can get a 24 hour period and then they send it up to a lab in, uh, in Boston where uh, it's called BioBot, and uh, and they test the water for the presence of, of COVID-19 particles as sort of the concentration per liter. And uh, over the past few months, those concentrations have been going up uh, uh, pretty significantly, uh, particularly in the central uh, uh, plant that is in, it's right off Key Biscayne. Mm -hmm. uh, but they've also been going up in the north and the south uh, uh, wastewater treatment plants too. Uh, not as high as they were during the peak of Omicron when there were about nearly a million particles per liter. Right now at the highest in the central plant, there are about 650,000 per liter. But um, but it's it's clearly increasing. Yeah. And and yeah. And, yeah. and so what's the benefit for public health officials, for researchers, for the community to get these signs of covid and sewage? Well, I think we're still probably working out uh, the best way to use it, but it's certainly an early warning system. I think that uh, with the rise of at-home tests that don't get reported and the closure of more mass testing sites, those those case counts um, uh, maybe become a little less reliable or they lose some value. And so this this helps people see. I, I, my understanding is that people can who are infected can begin to shed this uh, in their waste, uh, the particles of COVID, uh, before they even show symptoms, maybe as, as early as a week before. So uh, it really, you know, it gives uh, uh, counties or, or other public health, local public health officials time to alert people to the increase, and then people can decide for themselves if they want to wear masks, do they want to avoid indoor public areas. Um, certainly, they ought to be thinking seriously already about getting vaccinated and boosted, which our, our state COVID data shows has been increased lately, which is one sort of promising thing is that I've noticed in the, in the, the health department's biweekly reports that the vaccinations are up to. So. It does bring up a lot of questions, and that's why we invited Eileen Marty back on WLR. And Dr. Marty is a professor at Florida International University, infectious disease expert and uh, disease medicine. Dr. Marty, always a pleasure 
to have you on. Uh, what do you make of the most recent data, particularly the sewage uh, data that uh, Dan's reporting on? Right. So I really appreciate Dan's comments. Uh, moreover, I have been looking at uh, not just the sewer situation here in, in Miami-Dade, but throughout of Florida and, uh, and, out, and throughout the United States. And in fact, um, something that we did very early on, which was to look at sewer here in Florida, um, only very recently has become part of the CDC's reporting for the entire nation. And I think it's very important. Uh, it is, as Daniel said, a leading indicator. And unfortunately, again, as, as he said, it is clearly showing that we have uh, a rise in cases and, excuse me, a rise in people who have the virus that they are shedding and that it's showing up in the in the wastewater to be perfectly um, accurate about yeah. it. Mm -hmm. The 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 the, the uh, positivity rate is clearly up as well. Now, um, in in this area in Miami Dade, we have one of the higher percents of people who have had COVID in in uh, compared to the rest of the United States. So, uh, about half of our population has been infected with the virus. And, and a great deal of those were infected with the most recent peak wave, which can't, you know, that large wave of Omicron BA.1. Yeah. And that means uh, the other thing that we get from the sewer isn't just the concentration of virus. We're also, we also get the information of what strains of ah. uh, SARS-CoV-2. And so what exactly. strain, what strain are we seeing now, Dr. Marty? It's almost all BA.2, and that's the, that's, the, that's the key thing. Now, we also know that having had BA.1, as so many of our citizens did uh, in late December, early January especially, um, that does confer some level of immunity in the vast majority of people who were infected from BA.2. And that's really important for two reasons. BA.2 is more contagious than BA.1, Plus, the data from Hong Kong shows very clearly that BA.2 is a nasty virus, so that among people who do not have either prior immunity uh, from infection or immunity from vaccines, it's just as deadly and just as serious as the original SARS-CoV-2 that was detected in Wuhan. So the fact that we have a very large percentage of our population vaccinated, and then on top of that, a very large percentage who have been infected with one version or another, especially recently with Omicron, uh, is why, even though we are seeing an uptick in hospitalizations, it's not a massive increase. Yeah, let me let me uh, make sure that uh, I understand, and hopefully we we all understand, Dr. Marty, what you just. Uh, explain to us in terms of the BA2 variety variant of uh, COVID-19, which is the uh, overwhelming majority of the cases that uh, that you and other public health officials suspect are are being picked up in the data here. That's first of all, that's correct, right? The BA2 is the variety that's spreading now. Right, and okay. it's not a, uh, it's not by suspicion; it's by facts. Understood. <laughs> Appreciate that, that correction, doctor. That is yeah. it. Right, uh, and. And you noted is the BA one, the Omicron variety, back uh, around the first of the year was seen as you know highly contagious and generally uh, not uh, as dangerous as the original 
uh, March 2020 COVID-19 version. But what you're saying here is the BA2 variety, which is the one spreading now, is as dangerous as the original COVID-19 variant. Is that correct? That is correct. That's what the data shows. But because we have pre-existing immunity as a population, so in other words, we have achieved for now herd immunity. And I say that for now very with emphasis because we know two other things about coronaviruses. We've known for decades that coronaviruses in general, many different kinds of coronaviruses, do not provide lifelong immunity so that you can get reinfected. And so we knew that about natural infections with all kinds of coronaviruses in humans and in animals. Now, because we have a a set of vaccines and in, in the US among the very finest vaccines available anywhere to combat SARS-CoV-2, we're unfortunately seeing that even that type of immunity also wanes. Mm. And so, uh, so we, are in a, we, are, we are right now in a very interesting situation where immunity beats this, this nasty BA.2 that's out there. The, the, the question is, how long is BA.2 going to keep circulating, number one, mm-hmm. uh, or how many subtypes of BA.2, because there's already two major subtypes of BA.2 that are circulating in different parts of the United States, like BA.2.12 and BA.2.12.1, which are also very nasty. So you see, we're in this kind of balancing act. Yeah. Right now, it looks good. Public health-wise, we're not in a public health emergency in Florida at this time, and that means our hospitals are not overwhelmed at this time. Dr. Eileen Marty is with us, uh, uh, professor of infectious disease at Florida International University. Dan Chang is also with us, healthcare reporter for a news partner, the Miami Herald. Uh, we're talking about COVID-19. Yes, the pandemic does continue here in uh, South Florida and elsewhere. Uh, what are your uh, pandemic and COVID questions, 800-743-9576. The data show uh, cases are increasing in South Florida, the BA2 Omicron variety, 800-743-9576. There's no mandatory mask any longer on public transit or airplanes. Uh, what are you uh, doing and, and uh, uh, to, uh, to address the concerns maybe that you have as we're seeing case counts increase? 800-743-WLRN. Dan, I want to ask you about the state of vaccination in South Florida. As Dr. Marty lays out there, uh, you know, we we are uh, the community is is dealing with this uh, variant, the BA2 variant, at a much different level of, of course, vaccination and immunity than what we had just two years ago. Of course, when there were no vaccines or no immunity. Um, What what does the community vaccination rate look like and particularly regarding boosters? regarding those people who have been eligible for boosters? So, uh, look, the the data that we have, we wrote about this a few months ago, that in Miami-Dade, it can look a little bit different, maybe even a little bit better than it actually is because of effects from people who may be uh, getting vaccinated here but may not necessarily live here and and use a local address of a family member or a friend or a hotel they're staying in. Um, uh, but in terms of Miami-Dade, you know, our total population is, is uh, about 85% vaccinated, according to the CDC. 
Uh, and so uh, that's, that's, that's a pretty high rate and, and it's, it's stratified. So the older, the higher age groups that you get, the more, the, the higher the vaccination rate, the lowest is, is among the youngest groups who are eligible, uh, which is children and young adults. Uh, but in terms of boosters, um, you know, the CDC data says about 33% of the fully vaccinated population uh, has received the first booster dose. Um, so it's it's not 33% of the county population, it's it's 33% of those uh, who are fully vaccinated. Uh, and I'm sorry, I can't do the math fully in my head, but I would say that's probably somewhere around 800,000 or so people if, um, if this uh, if this is correct in terms of the, the CDC data. And, you know, importantly to what Dr. Marty was saying, uh, Tom, is that um, we've read this uh, for a while now that that vaccination and a prior infection seems to confer the best kind of protection uh, against severe illness and, and death, if not necessarily against getting infected again. And the problem with that is that, you know, nobody should really be going out and, and intending to get infected. But I think it's a broader spectrum of protection that is, is built up in the body, uh, as opposed to the vaccination-derived immunity, which, which tends to focus, I think, a lot on the uh, on the spike proteins. Um, and so, uh, yeah, the, the, the booster, though, is, is what the CDC recommends as the best protection out there right now. So, so. Dr. Marty, what options are out there for schools, for businesses? Uh, for individuals, uh, for that matter, as we're seeing the case count climb uh, from the lows that we have seen, right? We're nowhere near the kind of surge that we saw during Delta or Omicron. But as you mentioned, the seriousness of this BA2 variant is very significant. Uh, and yet we do have the vaccinations. We do have prior immunity and prior infections to help fight it. But what options do uh, do do individuals, do schools, companies, businesses have? So there are uh, public health options and public health recommendations, and then there are the laws of Florida. And those may or may not uh, work in sync with each other, although they really should. Um, but in terms of one thing that businesses and so forth need to make sure they have is the best possible ventilation in their uh, facilities. And, uh, and, and that means having at least MERV 13 rated uh, uh, filtration systems for their HVAC systems. And that's something all businesses, schools, buildings, et cetera, really ought to be sure that they do, because that is one of the key factors in transmission. That's why we are always saying, do it outdoors if mm -hmm. you can, right? Mm -hmm. That for sure. Um, the next thing is, uh, and this is a, uh, obviously a changing picture. I think uh, everyone here is aware that Moderna formally submitted all of its data and has formally requested as of yesterday, the FDA to review its data to be able to provide their vaccine starting at age six months. And their data uh, is good on that, showing that um, it, it gives you at least a 51% uh, efficacy for, uh, for certain age groups, uh, specifically for the six months to, to, uh, to um, two years, and a little bit less efficacy in the two to six years, and excellent efficacy above that. So the plus their safety data is excellent. And if that gets passed, and it should, I, I would expect having looked at the data myself within uh, by certainly by the end of May, then that's going to give schools and uh, parents another option because there have been a lot of cases in children, more than we like to think about. And there have been deaths in children plus long COVID in children. So there is a changing picture there. 
I totally agree with Daniel in two things. Number one, um, yes, uh, the boosters absolutely are, are, have been shown to be a really good idea. Uh, mixing and matching boosters is also a, a good idea um, for a variety of reasons. And then the other uh, component that Daniel mentioned, which is having had the infection plus the vaccine does in fact absolutely give you the best protection, but it also, unfortunately, when you get the virus, you, you then do incur some risk of long COVID, less if you're already vaccinated, however. So that, so you have to bear that in mind that, uh, that that's, that's a, that's a, a gift with a big string on it. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Dr. Marty, if, you know, uh, we know that uh, a federal judge in Tampa stepped in and said that, uh, the CDC could not mandate masks on uh, airplanes and uh, public transit. Um, uh, we know the state of Florida has stepped in late last year and said that school districts could not mandate masks for students and that uh, uh, employers could not mandate vaccines for employees. So we know th- these kinds of uh, regulations have been put into place. As you're looking at the data, as a infectious disease uh, expert, uh, have have you changed kind of how you're operating in public just on your own time, given the data that you see that Dan reports on in the sewage and the, the other infectious disease community spread transmission data that the CDC has released? Oh, you're not going to see me in an indoor public crowded space without a mask. I will definitely be wearing a mask in any indoor crowded space uh, that's a uh, you know, that, that is, uh, public Mm -hmm. because the risk is just not worth it to me. I've, I've managed so far to, to not catch the virus myself and just have the vaccines. And I'm quite happy with that. Um, so, and I would advise others to take care of themselves as well, but, uh, you know, no matter what you really have to think, each person has to think of their own personal risk. They do a risk assessment on yourself for the situation you're in, your underlying conditions uh, and the underlying conditions and problems of the people you are close to and likely to infect, even if you end up with a mild infection. So those things should always be taken into consideration. And when there are no uh, uh, legal mandates to do something, at least there should not there should also be no legal mandates not to do something that is completely reasonable and personable for yourself and um that at no time should someone who is taking precautions wearing a mask to protect themselves and others be uh be told not to or ridiculed in any way because they're doing something that is benefiting them and potentially you because another thing is while it's recommended that if you are if you have a respiratory disease you really should stay home it, many times you can't stay home so if you're going to go out and you have a respiratory illness you really ought not to share it and you really ought to be wearing a mask uh, dan chang with the miami herald what's the talk amongst uh, hospital um, uh, operators and administrators regarding this uptick we're seeing in in the sewage and in the infection uh, uh, rate as they're, you know, looking at the summertime again, are they preparing for a well, surge? What are they looking at? 
I think that they that, that that's their nature is to be prepared, um, and and they've sort of backed off or shied away a little bit from from predictions. But yeah. in speaking to the chief medical officer for our county's uh, public health uh, system, Jackson Health, uh, he did tell me that they you know they were starting to see a, a slight uptick, um, and similar to what happened during the Omicron wave, Tom, they're also catching a lot of people who didn't know they were infected until they were admitted in the hospital mm-hmm. for a different reason. And that's not necessarily good news for the hospital because they still have to spend the resources to uh, put that person in a, in a area where they're not gonna spread the disease to protect themselves. So they have to wear more protective gear and it's just, it's more costly. Um, but I, I think it's, it's, um, it, it's, it's an interesting dynamic that, that we need to be sort of careful about when, you know, when, when the majority of people who are going in our public hospital are only finding out about it afterwards because it also means that they're spreading the disease. And Miami-Dade is the only county right now, according to the CDC, with a medium level right. of, 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 of COVID. Every other county in the state is, is still low. Yep, uh, they're, all, so. they're on that map. They're all green, except for Miami-Dade County, which is was green not that long ago, but now is yellow, yeah. uh, noting right. a medium level of uh, community uh, risk for COVID-19. Dan Chang, a healthcare reporter, first rate with our news partner, Miami Herald. Dan, great to have you on the program again. Thanks for sharing Thank your time. Thank you. Uh, and Eileen Marty, Dr. Marty, always wonderful to hear from you, professor of infectious disease at FIU. I uh, appreciate your sharing your expertise with us as well. Thanks for having me. Bye. Still to come on our program, 911 calls are going unanswered and operators are putting in long hours in Broward County. The Broward County Sheriff joins us next to talk about the 911 system. Join our conversation, 800-743-9576. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup here on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening and supporting public radio. In Broward County, thousands of 911 calls have gone unanswered. According to an investigation by the Sun Sentinel, the number of abandoned calls has risen over the past three years. Sun Sentinel data reporter Spencer Norris told WLRN's Sundial program this week the time it takes to answer 911 calls in Broward County is another issue with the emergency center. There has been a problem that's been developing over a long period of time and kind of hit its peak in the past few months. Unanswered calls, time to answer calls, and then there's staffing. There are almost six dozen openings for operators for the Broward County 911 system. According to the investigation, the Broward Sheriff's Office Regional Communications Center gets about 2.2 million calls a year with 297 people responsible for staffing those phones and radios around the clock, 24-7-365. 800-743-WLRN, our phone number, to join our conversation here today, talking about the 9-11 system in Broward County, 800-743-9576. Gregory Tony is with us now, the Broward County Sheriff. Sheriff Tony, welcome to WLRN. Thanks for your time today. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I appreciate it. Is the 911 Center fulfilling its duties and serving emergencies in Broward County? Yes, it is. Uh, but we are not perfect in the sense that we could do better and we can do more. You know, one of the things I appreciate that you brought up was that the Sun Sentinel had introduced a recent article uh, based on an investigation that yielded that, yeah, we are still in a position where we need to do better in this service. In particular, uh, one of the issues we're facing is the recruitment and the retention of outstanding employees. And much of that is collectively between the issue with pay raises, salaries, and workload. So let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, the Sun Sentinel reported as of this week, there were 69 operator openings. Uh, is that still roughly the case? 
Uh, I think the number is actually higher than that from some of the assessments we looked at uh, from our call taker positions and dispatchers. We're actually up in the upper 80s, probably about 89 or 90 at this point. And to put that in perspective for the community and the listeners, we're allocated uh, roughly 400 positions in that particular field. And to be down that significant wow. portion uh, defeats the national numbers and recommendations and protocols, you know, where we want to stay above that 20 percentile in terms of attrition and losing folks. And again, uh, where's the problems that lie? I'll start with the first one. Uh, I've been in the office now for roughly three years, almost three and a half years. If you think about the history behind the system, uh, we created a regional communication system here in Broward County going back in 2013, right. where collectively, you know, chiefs of police, firefighters, community stakeholders all agreed this would be the best process. Mm -hmm. And it was a huge learning curve there. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm an end user, so I can recall uh, chasing suspects and there being issues with radio communications and dispatchers struggling to understand where you were located in a region because they took on new assignments and geographics. Uh, but with that, those things were mitigated. But the problem we're currently having, and it truly is, um, lies between keeping good employees and being competitive. You mentioned that we answer almost 2.5 million calls for service per year. If you look what's occurring in our collective 911 emergency calls, we receive 1.2 million per year over what Miami-Dade receives. Palm Beach receives about 400,000 911 calls per year. And then it trickles on down from mm -hmm. small municipals. The point I'm making is in Palm Beach County, their members receive anywhere between 15 to $20,000 more for doing less of the work. And we're losing qualified personnel that we train up, get great experience, and then they go north or south. Yeah. So, Sheriff Tony, let's let's talk brass taxes here then. What's starting pay yeah. for a 9-11 operator? If someone was to apply for one of those 80 open positions today and they were offered the job, what would that starting salary be? Yeah, our current salary in comparisons, if you're looking at Broward Sheriff's Office, we currently have our folks that will start at between about thirty-seven dollars to $38,000 a year. Uh, as a communication specialist, one. So that's, you roll that's that, sorry, just so we're clear, that's salary yeah. only. Any other fringe benefits on top of that? No, we're talking about salary only, entry level, baseline, um, being hired and brought into the organization. Uh, they do a 3% you know, um, investment into the pension. That's no different than anything okay. else. And where, where, but, is that, where is that salary set? Sherry? Is that by the BSO? Is that by county commission? Is that by some kind of grant? Well, no, our salary for our employees are covered through funding provided through the county. Okay. And so once those fundings are coming over, we have the employment bracket to set the standards for what we wish to pay our employees. Now, the interesting thing about that is uh, over the last really four years, I've looked at the variance difference in our budget requests. And what I mean for the layman is we propose a budget for what we need, not what we want in communications. Right. And then the county can elect to modify that and opt the particular budget for what they will pay. Over the last four years, that variance titles up to, or totals up to roughly $13 million. In 2018, we were $2.8 million short of our request. 2019, right. we were $5.1 million short. That, that request, though, includes, uh, I would presume, right, deputies, equipment. Uh, you, you know, it's not just 911. Operators. No, 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 no. It, that is precisely the budget for communications. Um, let me remind you. I so see. we we have we have five thousand eight hundred employees. Right, sir. right, right. Okay. Our operating budget is so, over a billion dollars. So just to be clear, Sheriff, you're saying that your requested budget for communications, emergency communications of Broward County, has come up how many million dollars short over the past number of years? 
Each year, collective is over $13 million. In 2018, the physical request was $2.8 million short. Uh, our proposed budget in 2019 was 5.1. And 2020, 2021 was 5.4. Gotcha. And, and so are you saying that, that that difference between what your department is requesting from the county and what the county is actually approving, that makes up the difference in the $37,000 starting salary for a 9-11 operator? No, what it does is restrict our ability to enhance pay increases and become more competitive. You can't start with a deficit in the millions yeah. every single year in an operating budget because we cannot afford to give a added pay, increased salaries, those things um, on a level that's competitive with the people, just the county, just north of us. Sheriff Tony, the challenges that the Sun Sentinel investigation identified through its documents, the abandoned calls and the time to answer a call, uh, is it accurate to say you're attributing those shortcomings to the lack of staffing, the inability to be fully staffed? There's a little there's a little misguided information there and in how that uh, article was presented. And let me give the realities behind what we've referenced with abandoned calls. Abandoned calls occur when individuals dial 911 and disconnect either early or some technical problems, a multitude of different variations, and then we try to call them back. Uh, so it's not a matter of are we ever answering them. The problem is when personnel are calling, there's a national standard to try to answer every phone call, or at least 90% of the phone calls that come in within 15 seconds. Uh, that used to be 10 seconds back in 2020. Right. So we're able to make the recalls, but I always go back to the, the basic human uh, tendency. When people are panicking, when people are facing a crisis, an emergency, two seconds is too long. And so they hang up. Three seconds is too long. 10 seconds is too long. Having added manpower gives us the ability not only to make the recalls, but to answer calls quicker. And the way to get there is to have more retention and more employees and not operate under minimum staffing protocols. What kind of goals do you have? We've got about 30 seconds left. What kind of hiring goals do you have for uh, until the end of this fiscal year, for instance? Well, what I was delighted to hear in our last meeting with the county commission was that they were going to fund what I would need. And so in a couple of days, I'm going to be going over okay. introducing a new budget request that we need to be competitive, not just competitive, but to be the best in the tri-county area. We also need to build out new infrastructure for uh, our PSAP or communication center in-house so that we're not leasing out three locations across three different parts of the county. Right. Uh, and then also making sure that we spend more time um, really focusing on getting quicker call responses to calls and making sure we don't lose any people. Uh, sheriff Gregory Tony, the Broward County Sheriff. Sir, much appreciated. Thank you for spending your time with us today. Finally, in the roundup this week, a month of zip codes and zippodes. Throughout April, we invited you to write an ode to your zip code along with the O Miami Poetry Festival. This year, we received almost 1,300 poems. More than 100 each were about the sun and beaches. 27 mentioned mangoes, 15 included iguanas, 2 spoke of chupacabra. Since you started writing poetry based on your postal code, we've received almost 15,000 poems about this place we call home. I am joining you from South Miami, so my zip code is 33143. <laughs> my zip code is... If I stretch my long arms out, I'll touch the ocean blue and 87th Avenue. This is Alexandra Ceballos, Wednesday night, as we heard from several Zippode poets. I think Zippodes is kind of like a really creative activity. So kind of while I was um, actually at school, um, I was thinking and scrolling through Instagram and I'm like, oh, look at that, Zippodes. 
So I start reading some and I'm like, well, where do I find myself within my zip code? So I open maps and bam, I look at the map. I'm like, wow, it turns out I'm right at the center. So I'm just like right at the center, literally how it says in my poem. So that's really how I got inspiration for my zip code. Just look at a map. <laughs> I'm in Mid Beach, 33140. This is Leanna Vasur. Her inspiration was an encounter that can only be described as existential. Morning beachside dog walk. Tourist Chancleta's slap. Hey, did the sun rise? The slapping of this guy's chancletas or flip-flops and the fact that he spoke to me totally identified him as a tourist. (laughs) And then the absurd but also totally reasonable question did the sunrise? And that's what everybody wants to know every morning where I live. She wasn't the only poet to find inspiration in the morning. So did Mia Sher. I'm here from Surfside, Florida. My zip code is 33154. My zip code is, shout out to the birds who serve as my alarm clock. My school attendance depends on you. Every day in the mornings, I have to wake up around 6 a.m. for school And sometimes I hear these really loud birds chirping in my backyard. So just whenever I think about Surfside and my community, I just think about these birds, like the first thing that comes to mind. And I'm really bad at waking up in the mornings and I always snooze my alarm. But sometimes these birds, I just hear them. I'm like, oh, I have to wake up for school. Now, Catherine Shahada was also inspired by nature around her zip code and also a favorite song lyric. My zip code is 33134. And my zip ode is brown paper packages tied down with strings. Billowing banyan trees are my favorite things. So I do a lot of running uh, and I love Coral Gables for that reason. There's a lot of tree coverage. um, So just kind of running around and and really looking at the trees. And uh, it kind of just occurred to me that Um, you know, the hanging prop roots really kind of looked like strings and this kind of idea of them being gifts, I guess, to us. And and I've always loved the sound of music. So it kind of triggered that in my mind. So I started kind of playing with that idea. Brown paper packages tied down with strings. Billowing banyan trees are my favorite things. Brown paper packages tied up with strings. These are a few of my favorite things. That'll do it for the South Florida Roundup this week. It is produced by Natu Tway. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohn. Our news director is Terrence Shepard. Alicia Zuckerman is our editorial director. Jessica Bakeman is the senior editor of news. The Director of Radio Operations and the program's technical supervisor is Peter J. Mares. Richard Ives answers the phones. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for calling, listening, and supporting WLRN. This program is made possible by Willie the Bee Man, bee removal specialist. When the dog bites, when the bee stings, when I'm feeling sad, I simply remember my favorite.